right, well, good evening. Can I have you turn with me to the book of Revelation? You knew that was coming. Chapter 20. Let's tonight read verses 11 to 15, where John said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We are living at a time in human history where most people believe there's not, never going to be a day of reckoning coming, a day of judgment, when they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for the way they live their life on the earth. Well, this passage, more than any other, gives us a look at that coming day. We studied this a few weeks ago. It is what Jesus called the resurrection of condemnation. Let me read to you chapter John 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good, or in other words, believers in Christ, to, resur uh, to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil, evil, unbelievers, of course, will come forth to the resurrection of condemnation. Now here, guys, Jesus is teaching there's going to be two great resurrections. The Jewish people believe there's going to be one. One great, all-encompassing resurrection. Jesus says that's incorrect. There's going to be two great resurrections. The first one he called the resurrection of life. That is for believers. That's for believers. And the second he called the resurrection of condemnation, which is for unbelievers. In Revelation 20, verse 5, we learn that these two resurrections are separated by at least a thousand years. Now, Paul the Apostle went on to explain that the first of these great resurrections is not a single event in time, but a category that contains multiple resurrections of believers. We've studied this. I'm not going to go over it again. You can check out 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, and of course, Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, where we really talked about this uh, at some length. That's, that's the first resurrection. The, the one that Jesus called the resurrection of life. Now we see the second of these two great resurrections. And let me read verses 11 to 12 one more time. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven, and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Again, Jesus called this the resurrection of condemnation. The word condemnation is a Greek word that means judgment, as in a punitive judgment rendered in a court of law. Someday, the Bible teaches all unbelievers will be resurrected bodily from the dead and will stand before Almighty God at what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. 
This is going to be judgment day for unbelievers. This is going to be their day in court, or so they think that's what it's going to be. Uh, so many people have the concept that when they die and stand before God on the day of judgment that, you know, I've got to plead my case, present to him all the reasons why he's lucky to have me on his team, why I'm deserving of heaven. And folks, there are a lot of people out there who truly believe they are deserving of heaven. And all they need to do when they get up there and stand before God is to tell God all the good works that they did over the course of their lives, how wonderful they were as, uh, as, a, you know, as human beings on the earth, and they're convinced that they're going to cause God to see it there. I just need to show God all the great things I've done. And after I get done showing him all the wonderful, the wonderful person that I was on the earth and all the wonderful things I did for him, he's going to say, wow, that is impressive. I mean, you you got to come into heaven because I just can't be without you. You're that wonderful. That's what they think. Not exactly how it's going to work out, but they why do they think this way? Because they believe that they're basically good people. Yeah, maybe not perfect, although there are some out there, and I've met them, who really do think they're perfect. But most will say, yeah, I, you know, I'm a good person. Not perfect, but I think certainly good enough to get into heaven. Well, all right, uh, let's break down this passage and see what God has to say about it, because he's the only one that matters, right? So Revelation 20, verse 11, John said, Then I saw a great white throne. Now here, guys, we're given a glimpse of the Supreme Court, <laughs> not of America, not even of the world, but of the whole universe, the Supreme Court of the entire universe. As we have said, the great white throne is where all unbelievers, after having been bodily resurrected from the dead, will stand before God to be judged. All of those, of course, who died on the earth without receiving Jesus as their Savior. Now, guys, don't confuse this judgment with the Bema seat judgment of believers where they stand we stand before jesus and he rewards us for our service to him on the earth this judgment isn't punitive the bema seat judgment is not a punitive judgment it is a rewards based judgment think of the olympic games how the athletes compete and then they come up to the judge's seat to receive their rewards or their their medals okay that's what it's going to be like for believers when we stand before Jesus. We are going to be judged, but not in a punitive sense. We're going to be judged where all the works we did, were they done out of the right motives? 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, you know, did I do it for the glory of God or for the glory of self? If I did it for my glory, then I'm going to lose some rewards, whatever work I did for uh, my glory. If I did these things with the right heart for Jesus' glory, I'll receive a full reward, that kind of thing. But uh, the Bema seat and the great white throne judgment are separated by at least, listen, a thousand and seven years. Why do I say that? Because believers are rewarded at the rapture. Remember what Jesus said? He said, behold, I am coming quickly, speaking to his church, and my reward is with me. So when Jesus comes for us at the rapture, we are caught up to meet him in the air he takes us to heaven. The first thing he does is we stand before him and get our rewards. Now, we sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Seven years later, we come back with him, and he establishes his kingdom, right? So believers, you know, receive their rewards at the time of the rapture. 
And then you have the seven-year tribulation period, and followed that is followed by the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And at the, at the end of the millennial kingdom, that we see the great white throne judgment. So there are two thing, judgments that are separated by at least 1,007 years. It's interesting that John says, I saw a great white throne. It's great because there is none higher in all the universe. This is the highest court, the supreme court of all the universe. It's white because of the perfection, purity, and righteousness of the decisions handed down. Wow, I can't wait. Our judicial system has become so corrupted that judges don't really hand out justice. Uh, it's all partisan politics. But when Jesus takes the throne, you can bet one thing for sure. Everything he does will be righteous and pure and true and so on. So that's the Supreme Court. Next we see the Supreme Judge. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Who is this judge? Well, he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he told us. He told us that. John 5, verse 22. He said, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And then verse 27 of John 5. And has given him, Jesus, authority. The Father's given Jesus authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Revelation 20, verse 11, one more time. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, listen, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And the them I'm, I'm, I'm figuring is the unbelievers that stand before the Lord. All right, The unbelievers that stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. Here John is describing an awesome scene. Jesus sets up the great white throne and instantly the heavens and the earth flee away. They're gone. They're going to be recreated at the end of this whole thing. But right now, they're gone. What does that mean? It means that there is no, nowhere left for sinners to hide. Remember earlier in chapter 6, when God begins to pour out his judgment, they flee to the rocks and say, fall on us. They hide themselves in the caves. And, you know, and these unbelievers trying to escape the judgment of God. But when the great white throne judgment is set up, nobody, no unbeliever will be able to escape. Uh, everyone is going to stand. Every unbeliever will stand. Who has ever lived will stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge of the highest court in the universe. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 13, he said, All, uh, all uh, things are um, open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. Romans 14, verses 11 and 12. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Now, we have bowed on earth. If you bow the knee to Christ on earth, receiving him as your Lord and King, you are set forever. If you wait until Judgment Day to, to bow the knee, because you will bow the knee, every unbeliever will have to bow before Jesus and acknowledge he is the Lord. But then it's too late. But as, I, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. 
So, so far we have seen that court has been convened and the judge is seated on where? The bench? The throne. Because this judge happens to also be the king. Next we see the supreme summons. The supreme court, the supreme judge, and now the supreme summons. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Notice that we see a judge but no jury. We, we see defendants but no defense attorneys. That's because, guys, this is not a trial. This is not a trial. The case for a man's guilt was already decided in the Garden of Eden when God brought the gavel down on the human race and declared all mankind guilty. How did he do that? When Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us, and therefore God gave the curse because it was God's judgment upon the guilty. The curse, and we read about that in Genesis 3, where God cursed the earth, God cursed the woman in childbirth, the man would have to work through the sweat of his brow to bring forth food now. No more would everything just bring forth naturally. Uh, and man would not have to work and toil to feed himself. So the curse was God's way of proclaiming all mankind guilty because all of us, Adam blew it, and he blew it for all of his descendants. And that's why the Bible says, in Adam, all die. Of course, everyone born physically into this world is born of Adam. He's our father. And the family of Adam is a cursed family. The only way for us to escape the curse on the family of Adam, Adam's family, scary stuff. We're getting close to the, right? I was teaching, this, I was teaching along these lines one day on a Sunday morning. And I was talking about Adam's family. And these two young ladies were laughing. I'm thinking, why are they laughing? Wait a minute. It's Halloween today. Yeah, Adam's family. I get it. All right. I'm a little slow, but I, I, I caught it. But the only way for us to escape the curse on the family of Adam is to change families. Wouldn't a lot of us like to do that? The only way you can change families is by accepting Christ, and you become now a child of God with God as your father. And now you're no longer a member of the cursed family of Adam, but you're now a member of the blessed family of God. Amen. But guys, the guilt of mankind was something Jesus affirmed um, different passages, but the one that stands out in my mind is John 3, 18, a universal guilt. He proclaimed uh, universal guilt of mankind uh, in John 3, 18, where the Lord Jesus said, he who believes in him, and Jesus, he's talking about himself, he who believes in him is not condemned, will not be going to hell. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So case closed, um, man is guilty. So you say, well, what's going on then in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, if man is already guilty? Well, this is what our judicial system, our system of jurisprudence calls the sentencing phase. Now, don't miss this. So a lot of folks think the great white throne judgment is going to be their day in court, trial, where they're going to prove their guilt, uh, their innocence, and be able to go to heaven, right? Um, you, a lot of folks believe that. But again, God has already pronounced the human race guilty, and the Bible is very clear about that. We're all guilty as the children of Adam. So what's going on here? Well, if in our judicial system, 
if somebody breaks the law and is arrested, goes on trial, and is found guilty, right? Uh, guilt is pronounced, the jury, uh, or if it's just a bench trial, you know, but they're found guilty. What happens? Well, they're usually sent back to their cell for a week, two weeks, a month, and then they come back for the sentencing phase. And here's where they learn their punishment. Keep that in mind. That's exactly what we're seeing here with the great white throne judgment. So verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Guys, I realize that could just be a metaphor, but I kind of believe what's in view here is bodily resurrection. Bodily resurrection of the unbelievers, right? Now this is interesting. Don't miss this. We, it, John says, I saw the small and great standing, and the idea is side by side, before God. The small and great doesn't refer to their physical stature. In other words, he's not talking about the short and the tall. It refers to their supposed importance upon the earth during their life. That's a very powerful image. You've got to get that in your head. Here we have a picture of Judgment Day, where the small and the great are standing side by side. The small would include the slave, the poor, the insignificant, the unimportant by man's standards. Standing next to the great would include the kings and presidents, senators and CEOs, the rich and the famous. Quite a scene. This group would include the atheists and the so-called intellectuals, all the college professors who mock the existence of God, the late-night comedians who were too cool for God and made fun out of those who were stupid enough to believe in God. These will include all the rebels who have ever lived on the earth that refused to bow the knee to Jesus as their king. All the William Henleys who shook their fist in the face of a holy God defiantly and said, I'm the captain of my ship. I, 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 he, he, he said, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my ship. God, bug off. I don't need you. I got that quote wrong. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. You can look it up. William Henley, famous poem Invictus, the one that one of the Oklahoma City bombings, Tim McVeigh, that was his how he went out. That's how he went to his death, quoting that poem. You're quite a big shot, Tim. I, don't, I think you're probably a little more humble right now. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. This group would also include all those whose life song was, <laughs> I did it my way in defiance of God. So guys, here we see all of the so-called somebodies standing next to the uh, lowly nobodies, the irreligious and the very religious, all standing before God on equal ground and all bound together by their common willful unbelief. These are those who rejected the love of the truth, the gospel, which would have saved them from this terrifying day. And now they stand before the one who loved them and gave him, himself for them, whom they rejected on earth as their loving Savior. They now stand, be, stand before him in heaven, and he becomes at this point now their righteous judge. And remember that God is no respecter of persons. He isn't impressed by fame and wealth by positions of power. He doesn't care if you were a king or a president on the earth. He doesn't care if you were one of the top billionaires that ever lived. He doesn't care. All, is, all will be judged fairly, impartially, and righteously. 
Where do these dead come from? And we're still dealing with the summons. Where did these dead come from? Well, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Death speaks of the grave, and um, the grave will give up the bodies of unbelievers. In other words, there will be a physical resurrection. Hades is the realm of the souls of the dead, and so it will give up the souls that are in it right now. Um, there will even be a resurrection of bodies from the sea. A lot of people are buried on land. A lot of people have died at sea. And so they, they will be resurrected, their bodies. No sinner will escape this judgment. I like what J. Vernon McGee, old-time preacher, said, and I quote, he quotes, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it. He said, multitudes who have gone to a watery grave in which the chemicals of their bodies have been dissolved in the waters of the sea will be raised. God will have no problem with this. <laughs> After all, they are only atoms, not atoms, atoms. He just has to put them together again. He did it once, he could do it again. The graves on earth will give up the bodies in Hades, the place where the spirits of the lost go will disgorge for this judgment. So the Supreme Court, the Supreme Judge, the Supreme Summons, how about number four, the Supreme Judgment? Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small, and great standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books verse 13 and they were judged each one according to his works guys jesus christ will judge these unsaved people on the basis of what is written in what the books plural the books what books well we're not told specifically all right we are told about one book of life but you know, at least two are anonymous. We don't know what they are. They're going to be, people are, unbelievers are going to be judged uh, according to what is written in the books. What books were not told, but it isn't hard to figure out from other passages in the New Testament. The first book is simply the Word of God, the ultimate book, right? How do I know that? Because again, Jesus told us that in John 12, 48. He said, he who rejects me does and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So the word of God obviously is one of the books. It's God's holy and righteous standard. And those that live contrary to it will be judged by it. Every sinner will be held accountable for the truth he or she has heard in this life. Listen, many of these will think that God has made a terrible mistake. Now, uh, these folks are going to be in, in Hades waiting the great white throne judgment. Uh, some of them at least a thousand years. Some have been down there since the beginning of time, right? Uh, you know, way back in the book of Genesis. So by the time the great white throne judgment is established and all these folks are resurrected, some will have been in Hades, the torment side, not Abraham's bosom, because that's empty today, because Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, set the captives free, Paul tells us, and then when he ascended back to heaven, he led Moses and Abraham and David and so on, all those believers who died believing in a Messiah, but 
the Messiah hadn't come yet to pay for their sins, so they couldn't leave Hades because their sins hadn't been paid for yet. So they were in this paradise, Abraham's bosom. It was a, it was a uh, prison because they couldn't leave, but it was a paradise. And when Jesus died on the cross, the first thing he did was he went down, he, uh, he unlocked the prison doors and led all the captives, believers, to heaven. And now as believers right now, because Jesus has, of course, died for our sins, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's another side of Hades. The two sides are separated by a giant gulf like the Grand Canyon. And that other side is where unbelievers go. And that's still very much in operation today. But um, a lot of folks are going to be waiting in this holding tank, this temporary place of incarceration for the resurrection and to stand before Jesus. I'm convinced a lot of them are going to be thinking to themselves for many, many years, God must have made a mistake. I shouldn't be here. When I get resurrected and stand before him, I'm going to... I'll show them. I'll tell them what a great person I was. I think that many people are, are going to be thinking that God made a terrible mistake because they went to church, they heard the Bible taught and the gospel preached, but that was the problem, folks. They heard the word, but they never really applied it by faith into their hearts, and therefore they never lived any of it out in their earthly lives. As Paul said, they were hearers of the word, well, that's James. Uh, they were hearers of the words of the word of God, but not doers. Uh, Paul said to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, many profess to know God, but in works, by their lifestyle, it's obvious they don't know him. Just because you go to church and hear the gospel or hear the word of God taught, wonderful. But if you don't take it into your heart and ask God by his grace to make it living and powerful in your life, if you walk out the doors and plan not to do anything with it, you're only deceiving yourself. James says, look, there's a lot of folks who are religious. They come to church, they hear the word, and they walk out the doors thinking that's all they need to do. Okay, I've been in church. But that's not what God wants. Being in church is great. But it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And the, in, the, in the end, God is looking for is a godly life. Somebody who really is accepted Christ as their Savior. Turn to Matthew 7. You all know it, but I'm going to just read it to you. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus said, not everyone, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws or you who lived unrighteously, lawlessly, is the idea. There's a lot of folks who go to church, but they go because they're trying to use God. They've been promised Cadillacs and expensive houses and prosperous businesses if they come and they have faith and they believe and, and God has promised me wealth and so on. And so they don't come out of a love for Jesus. They come out, out of a love for themselves. 
And the idea is they're not trying to lay up treasures in heaven. They're trying to lay up treasures on the earth. And Paul the Apostle said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He said, you know, from such people withdraw. Don't have fellowship with them. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And so if your heart is right, you love Jesus. Um, somebody has said, and it might be a little trite, but it's nonetheless true. The most important things in life are the things money can't buy. The older I get, the more I really, I realize that. It's, it's faith, family, country, which is, needs prayer desperately. But um, taking a walk on a beautiful autumn morning with my wife um, or with the grandkids, there's nothing I could better than that. You know, enjoying God's creation, just the change of seasons, you know, and the crunch of the beautiful leaves, on, uh, uh, you know, under your feet. I mean, um, I don't know. For me, that's really what life's all about. God, family, country, really, that's it. All right, so the first book that unbelievers are judged by is the Word of God. Second one is the ledger of God. What do you mean, ledger of God? Yes, the ledger of God. It's an accounting idea. It's what Paul called the record that contained the charges against us, Colossians 2.14. Guys, the Bible says that every sin that a person commits against God's law, just think of the Ten Commandments, okay? 613 laws that God gave Israel, but a lot of them were unique to Israel. But there were those that transcended the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments were those. And there were a few others, but those were the main ones that we think of. The Bible says that every sin a person commits against God's law um, is a debt that he or she must pay him. They owe God a debt that has to be paid. Just like when a cr criminal finishes his time in prison, we say, well, he has paid his debt to society. These sinners owe God a tremendous debt, a debt they accumulated over the course. And we all did, by the way. We all have a ledger. And all of us, you know, uh, every day, even as believers, we still violate God's laws. The difference is when we accepted Christ, Jesus took his blood and wrote on the bottom of that ledger to Telestai. You know what it means? Paid in full. And that happened when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished. That's the difference. Not that we're so much better than any other uh, you know, sinner. But we have been forgiven because we've accepted Christ and he paid our debt. But a lot of folks think that they don't need Jesus. Uh, if they believe in heaven, they don't need Jesus to get to heaven. I'm a good person, right? Um... But they all got a tremendous debt. They don't realize it. A debt that they accumulated over the course of their lives. And God is the ultimate bookkeeper. He keeps meticulous records of every thought, word, and deed that violated his holy law. Again, every sin is a crime against the holy God and is written in his book, his ledger. And they must be paid for. 
Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, God knows the heart. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him, to whom we must someday give an account. But Jesus came to pay our debt. You all know Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Jesus the sins of us all. And let me read to you that passage out of Colossians 2. I'll read verses 13 and 14. You were dead because of your sins. And because of your sinful nature was, uh, and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of uh, the charges against us, taking, uh, talking about our ledger, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. We've talked about this, right? When a person committed a crime back then, and they were found guilty. Their crime or crimes are written on a piece of parchment and then nailed to the dungeon door. When they finished paying their debt, they finished paying for those crimes, they would take that piece of parchment upon which had all the crimes they had ever committed, and again, they would write to Telestine in the bottom, roll it up, give it to him, and he would keep it on his person at all time because if he was ever accused of not paying his debt, he could show them. No, here it is. Here's my certificate, uh, the proof that my debt has been paid. Well, Jesus took all of our ledgers, all of the sins written on our ledger individually. He nailed it to his cross, and when he died, for, he died for all of us and wrote to tell us that. Paid in full. Somebody has said, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. But if a person refuses to receive what Jesus did in Calvary's cross, his death, which paid for all of their sins, then they will have to stand before God someday to be sentenced to pay for their own crimes against God. And folks, that would mean eternity in hell, in the lake of fire. Hebrews 10, therefore, says this, Verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the implication is apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. But there's always somebody, the eternal optimist, Paul said about the Jewish people, they have a zeal, but not according for knowledge, to knowledge, right? They being ignorant of God's righteousness, going around trying to establish their own system of righteousness, have not submitted to God's system, right? Like Cain. Abel, listen to what God said. Here's how you approach me. Abel did it God's way. God received him. Cain, he thought, well, I don't want to do it that way. You know, I don't want to bring a blood sacrifice. I'm a farmer. I'm going to bring God. Fruit of the fields. If you, you better like it. I get the impression that's kind of how he felt. 
And God rejected it. And Cain was upset. He pouted. And God says, why are you pouting? If you do what's right, I'll accept you. In other words, I'll accept anybody who wants to come to me. But you got to come my way. You can't come your way. And of course, we know the ultimate way is Jesus Christ. He's the only way. Not the ultimate. Yeah, the ultimate, but the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But there's always somebody who says, okay, that, that's okay about all that judgment stuff, because you know what? I'm a good person. And when I stand before God, I'm going to plead my case. I'm going to show him all the good things I've done. And I believe he's going to be fair and let me into heaven. I like what J. Vernon McGee said along those lines. Yes, my friend, you will be able to get a fair trial there. Your life is on tape. And Jesus Christ, the judge, happens to have the tape. I imagine God has a, a jumbotron. Okay? He's, he's the inventor of the big screen TV. I believe his jumbotron stretches from one galaxy to the other. So it's a big, uh, it's a big screen. And, um, and, but, but McGee says, you know, in Jesus, the judge happens to have the tape. I think he will, I think he will have it on a, a television screen so that you can watch it too. Uh, something call, he's calling This Was Your Life. You're an old-timer like I am. There was a program on that was called This Is Your Life. You know? Some of you remember that show. Well, he, McGee says it's going to be called This Was Your Life. Okay. Uh, do you think your life can stand the test where everything is replayed? Everything. Thought, word, deed, everything you've ever, you know. You think you can stand that test? Are you willing to stand before God and have him play the tape of your entire life? Uh, I don't know about you, but I couldn't make it. Thank God for his grace. And he quotes Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any should boast. This is why we don't see any legal representation for these people. There is no defense attorney because, listen, the only one that could have defended them against the judgment of God they rejected. They rejected. Remember what John said, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2? He said, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. I don't want you to sin, okay? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The Greek is the word it means an attorney for the defense. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father, he is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus died not just for believers, he died for the sins of the whole world. Technically, everybody in the world can go to heaven. They won't, because a lot of folks won't receive Christ. But they technically, their sins are paid for now, that, that plays into the third book, and I want to just have you hold on to that. But right now, uh, I'm, I'm sure some have the question in their mind, so if these people have already been found guilty, then what purpose does the great white throne judgment serve? As we've already said, the purpose of the great white throne judgment is not, listen, is not to determine a person's guilt or innocence before God. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the great white throne judgment will be to determine, listen now, the degree of punishment each guilty person will be assigned and have to endure in hell. Uh, I thought it important enough to read these two about the various degrees of punishment in hell. Turn to Matthew 11 real quick. 
And, and let's read verses 20 to 24. Matthew eleven twenty to 24. Jesus speaking. Then he, the Lord Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in, in which most of his mighty works had been done. This is up in the Galilee now, all right, where he did most of his ministry, um, where, where most of his mighty works, his miracles had been done because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, Karazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, very wealthy town, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There are degrees of punishment, and it's based on how much information or truth a person has. I mean, everybody is going to be, every unbeliever on the planet will be judged and sent to the lake of fire, but not all will receive the same punishment. You say, well, how could people in the darkest regions of Africa, how could they be judged when they never had the word of God? That's a good question. And Paul answers that very question in Romans chapters 1 and 2. He said that unbelievers are judged based on two things. The external evidence of the creation and the internal evidence of the conscience. Uh, the creation declares the glory of God, the firmament, the heavens, uh, show forth his handiwork. All of creation is speaking a universal language to everybody on the planet that there is a God who made all this. And if any person in their heart of hearts looks at the creation and says, I know a God had to do this, but how do I get to know him? I want to know you, God, if he has to send an angel. To get them the gospel, he'll do it because he's going to do it during the tribulation period. He's going to send an angel to preach the gospel to every unbeliever on the face of the planet. And he has done this in the past. I have heard testimonies from missionaries who have said when their missionary team finally broke through to some remote village uh, that they believed the gospel had never reached, and they began to share with the native population about Jesus Christ who created everything and, and, and were stopped and said, well... That's his name. What do you mean? He sent an angel to tell us about the God who made himself, who made all this. We didn't know his name, and now thank you. You've told us his name. If you have a heart to know God, and you cry out in your heart, God, I want to know you. I don't have any information, but I want to know you. God will get you the information you need to be saved. God never will send anyone to hell who wanted to be saved but never didn't have enough information in the gospel, right? That's the external evidence of the creation. But there's also the internal evidence of the conscience. Where did this knowledge of right and wrong that God has written in the hearts of every human being, where did that come from? Well, it evolved. Are you kidding me? Mercy, compassion, love, that evolved? Look, unbelievers... Evolutionists. Evolution is based on survival of the fittest. The strong killing the weak so that the strong could be even stronger. You, you know, evolution doesn't produce mercy and compassion. There is no mercy and compassion in a jungle. The weak become prey to the, for the strong, right? I mean, I heard the testimony of one atheist who was so committed to his atheism and then one day somebody posed that question to him. 
I think it might have been C.S. Lewis at one point. They, somebody posed the question, well, then where, did, where does good come from in the heart of man? Love and kindness and mercy and, and sacrifice. You know, you hear of soldiers that a grenade is tossed into the, uh, into the place where the, his buddies are all in, a, in a, some kind of a foxhole, right? And, and a, an unbelieving Marine or whatever jumps on the grenade and takes the blast and dies for the sake of his, his buddies. Unbelievers do that at times. Where does that come from? C.S. Lewis started thinking about that and thought about it, started eating at it. And finally he realized that those internal attributes, they, they transcend man. They're not from inside of man. They have to be placed there by some, he came to believe, an, an outside transcendent deity. And he, he became a believer. But all the people that stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, this will not be to determine their innocence or guilt. It will be to determine their degree of punishment in hell. Look at Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus said, That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes, of, of, of uh, whippings, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. With knowledge comes responsibility. God will hold a person who grew up in America, went to Awana's Bible camp, uh, family took him to church uh, every Sunday, and that, they knew the word of God but didn't receive Christ, their judgment is going to be a lot more severe than somebody who never really was able to go to church, study God's word and saw it. They're still accountable because they have the creation and the conscience, but uh, those that knew the word are going to be judged and didn't receive Christ much more severely than those who didn't have the Bible in their hands. Uh, guys, let me just say this. God, and we've talked about this, but let me just say this. God doesn't send people to hell for the wicked things they have done. This, this comes as a surprise to a lot of people. God doesn't send people to hell for the wicked things they have done any more than he brings people to heaven who have, for the good things they have done. Whether a person winds up spending eternity in heaven or in hell depends on whether or not they received or rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior while living upon the earth. These folks that stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, are going to hell not for the wicked things they have done. Not for the, they're not going to hell for any, you know, because they did wicked things, and certainly they will have done that. They're going to hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. But notice, they are judged according to their works, verse 13 tells us. This is because their works, evil deeds, will be used by God to determine their degree of punishment in hell. They won't be going to hell because of the wicked things they did. They'll go because they rejected Christ as their Savior. But once in hell, all the wicked things they did will determine their degree of punishment, which will they will endure in hell for all eternity. Just as a Christian's good works 
done for the Lord will determine their degree of reward in heaven. We don't get to heaven because we're good people and we're doing good things. It's good to live a good life. And as a Christian, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But the idea is that, look, we go to heaven because we accepted Christ. Once in heaven, we will be rewarded according to how faithful we served him while on the earth. So our good works will have uh, you know, something to do with how much we enjoy heaven, but uh, not whether or not we're going to get there. And again, guys, most sinners think they're good people. Not perfect, mind you, but certainly good enough to get into heaven when they die. They are harboring under a grave misconception. They're confident that their good deeds will someday outweigh their bad deeds. Here's the visual that in their minds they have. They stand before God. God's got a big scale. He's going to put all the bad stuff they did on one side and all the good stuff they did on the other side. And because most people think they're basically good people, they know they're going to, the scale's going to tip in their favor. And God's going to say, oh, it's close, but you made Come on in. They believe that's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. So God gives them what they want. They want to be judged according to their works. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. I did a lot of good things in my life. Fine, guys, okay. Well, let's see. So they stand before God. Gabriel hit the jumbotron. <laughs> this was your life. From one galaxy to the other. There it is. Can't deny it. It's right there. It's amazing how people want to stand before God in their wrapped in their own works of righteousness, which God says in Isaiah 64, 6, are the filthy rags of self-righteousness. You don't want to stand before God clothed in the filthy rags of your own supposed righteousness. You want to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? There's a third book mentioned in Revelation 20. And this one is talked about. It's the book of life, right? Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, hear me out. A little confusing. I don't mean to be confusing, but look. This was kind of um, taken as an illustration from what was common back in those days. The Book of Life is the official registry of heaven, which corresponds to the registry of citizens kept by ancient cities. What do I mean? Well, back in those days, whenever a child was born, their name was immediately, when they were first born, written in the official registry of that city, which meant they were now recognized as an official citizen of that town. That was important. Why? Because it guaranteed them all the rights and privileges of citizenship. Now, that's different from those who God, listen, in his foreknowledge, knew from eternity past all those who would receive Jesus before we were ever born. He knew us. He knew which would receive Jesus and which would not receive him as Lord and Savior during our lives and so on. And so he, it says that their names were written in his book of life from the foundation of the world. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 1, verse 4, and we read it again in Revelation 13, verse 8. Let me read you that one. 
Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. This is the Antichrist, all his followers, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Guys, there is a debate. We talked about this when we were in chapter 13, but let me state it again. There is a debate as to whether a true child of God can lose their salvation. And based in part, many base this, based on Revelation 3, verse 5, some say, yes, they can. And there's other verses, but okay, we're, we're in Revelation, right? Um, so a lot of people debate, a lot of Christians debate whether a true child of God can lose their salvation. And this is based in part on what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 5. Okay, and they say yes based on that. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so because of this verse, many Christians believe that a true believer in Jesus can lose their salvation, or in other words, have their name blotted out of the book of life. You see, it goes like this. If Jesus promises some that he won't blot their names out of the book of life. It implies others might be, right? But is that what is being taught here? Can a Christian, a true Christian, really lose their salvation and be sent to hell? Now listen, I believe that a true Christian cannot lose their salvation. That's me, all right? So then how do I explain what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 5? Well, it could be that there are two books. Two books. One, the book of life, and the other, the Lamb's book of life. Or maybe they are the same book. And what do I mean by that? All right. Let me read you what a couple authors said in the subject, and we'll, we'll move on. All right. Uh, one author had this to say about this verse. He said, and I quote, is there, is there a warning here that a true believer might lose his salvation? I don't think so. It would appear that God's book of life contains the names of all the living, the wicked as well as the righteous. Check out Psalm 62, verse 28. Revelation 13, verse 8 and 17, verse 8, suggests that the names of the saved are written in the book from the foundation of the world. That is, before they had done anything good or bad, by God's grace, they have been chosen in Christ before the beginning of time. Give some scripture references. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. The Greek verb is in the perfect tense, which means it can be translated, as does Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest in his expanded translation of the New Testament. He translates it like this. Your, your names have been written in heaven and are on permanent record up there. The author says it's not likely that Jesus would contradict himself in this important matter. So Jesus said to his disciples, your names are written in heaven. They're on permanent record up there. He wouldn't have said that if he's going to blot them out or, or any believer out, right? Warren Worsby adds, if the names of believers, the elect, are written from the foundation of the world, and if God knows all things, why would he enter the names of somebody who would one day fall and have to be removed from the book? We are enrolled in heaven because we have been born again. And no matter how disobedient a child may be, he or she cannot be unborn. Okay, I agree. Let me just quote the previous author one more time and we'll move on. 
He said, as unbelievers die, their names are removed from the book. So the book contains the names of all people, right? It's God's invitation to heaven, book of life. If you're going to wind up an unbeliever, when you're born, you're still invited. God knows you won't come. And when you die, not having accepted Christ, your name's blotted out. Okay? It's the idea. The, nook, the, the book contains... Uh, let me read it again. As unbelievers die, their names are removed from the book. Thus, at the final judgment, the book contains only the names of believers, those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world. It then becomes the Lamb's book of life because only those saved by the Lord Jesus Christ have their names in it. The rest have been blotted out because they didn't want to receive Christ. But they were invited. You know, God invites. Didn't he say, come to me all you who labor are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, right? At the very end of Revelation, he says, let you know anyone come who wants to come and drink from the waters of life freely. Nobody's excluded. Uh, that's the idea behind the book of life. You're born on the earth. You know, if, if you're going to be a believer in Christ, God knew that before the foundation of the world, so he wrote your name in. But if you're born on the earth and you're going to wind up never receiving Christ, you're still invited. Your name is still in, in the book of life. But when you die, obviously you're not going to be coming to God's heaven. Your name is blotted out. So at the end, the only names that are still there are the names of believers. And it now becomes the Lamb's book of life. He said, all the others have been blotted out, something God would never do for any true child of God. It is a book of life, and lost sinners are dead. And so, guys, as we wrap it up, after the righteous judge of the universe, Jesus Christ assigns to each unbeliever who stands before him at the great white throne judgment their personal sentence for the crimes committed against God Almighty, then we finally see the supreme sentence. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, or hell. Scientist and devout Christian Henry Morris and I had the great pleasure and honor of seeing him at one of our pastor's conferences before he went to be at the Lord. A real scientist, a tremendous man of God. We, we just sat there with our mouths open because he just taught scripture. I mean, he was just teaching, but he just kept quoting the Bible. I mean, he, he brilliant man. He must have memorized the whole New Testament. He's just quoting extemporaneously. No notes, just quoting scripture profusely. We just were, when he stopped, we, we all stood up and, and gave him a, a, just a applause. Amazing man. But he, he said this, and I quote, talking about people being unbelievers cast into the lake of fire, hell. All of these speculations, I'm sorry, all of these specifications seem to point to the likelihood, though we cannot be certain at this time, that hell, the Greek is Gehenna, also called the lake of fire, will be located on some far distant star. A star, after all, is precisely that, a lake of fire. There are indeed stars and galaxies that, although burning, do not give off light in the visible part of the spectrum, so that they consist both of fire and cloudy darkness. 
One might even suggest a black hole if and when such, such objects are actually proven to exist would fit possibly the description, end quote. Guys, one final thing. When it comes to the judgment of God upon guilty sinners, understand that there's going to be no plea bargaining like in our judicial system. Uh, you know, I, I killed somebody, but I'm going to plead down to a, what, a misdemeanor? That's happening today. Craziness, you know? I ran over um, some Trump supporters, but that's okay because my lawyer got it knocked down to a misdemeanor. I don't know. I made that one up, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's not that far-fetched, okay? But um, when it comes to the judgment of God upon guilty sinners at the great white throne judgment, there's going to be no plea bargaining, no, no appeals, all right? No appeals uh, will be allowed for this is going to be the Supreme Court of the universe. And listen, all verdicts are final and forever. Think about that. I, I wish unbelievers would just take a moment. I, I guarantee you this. If a person dies as an unbeliever, they're never going to forget what I'm saying. It will torture them every single day of their life. Why was I so hard-hearted? Why didn't I just listen? Why did I have to dismiss all this stuff my crazy co-worker used to tell me about Jesus? I used to laugh at him or her. I used to make fun out of them. I used to take those tracks and rip them up right in front of them. Ha, ha, ha. It was a big joke. Well, I'm not laughing anymore. Because I'm never going to get out of this place. There's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, not for five years or ten years or a hundred years, but for all eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, These are, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Matthew 22, verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One more, Jude one thirteen, Raging waves, talking about uh, false teachers. They're like raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. When I was in college, Bible college, I had a little, you know, he was a little guy, but he was a pastor. I think he was a youth pastor in his church. But um, he had just given a message. Uh, out of Revelation. And the title was, What Will You Choose Today? The Great White Stone or the Great White Throne? And he took us to Revelation 2, verse 17. I'll close with this. Where Jesus said, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give him, who is victorious? The ones who truly accept Christ as their Savior. So obviously in a lot of churches there's true believers, but there's also a lot of false believers, people that claim to be Christians but really aren't. And Jesus Christ and all the other apostles constantly tried to rock the boat to get people uh, feeling very uncomfortable because obviously the Lord and his apostles wanted people not to, take for granted that they're saved. Uh, examine yourself, the Bible says, to see whether you're really in the faith. Are you really a believer? So, so Jesus is appealing to unbelievers who think they're believers 
in this church. You've got to listen to the Spirit. Understand what he is saying to you in these churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. That's a symbol of acceptance. We even have a term, uh, they were blackballed, right? Because in the old days, they used to uh, have a white and a black stone. And if you were voting on something or someone to enter into the group, member, you'd throw in a stone. White stone meant accepted. Black stone meant rejected. Blackball, he was rejected. And he can't work or she can't work anywhere, right? That's the idea here. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So guys, the, the, the simple question before the human race, is it going to be the great white stone? God accepting you into heaven because you've received Jesus as your Savior? This is the time. This is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, I got time. You don't have time. Somebody said that one day Lucifer had a meeting of all of his demons. And he said to them, how can we get people to not come to Christ? One raised his little demon hand and said, uh, I will tell him, I will tell them the Bible is not the word of God. Satan said, that's not going to work. People know the Bible's the word of God. It's got too many prophecies and proofs, right? Another one said, well, I know. I will tell them something else. I forgot what he said. That's not going to work, Lucifer said. Then another demon said, I know what I'll, I know what will work. I will tell them they have time. You will be victorious. Go and do likewise. I'm convinced a lot of people will wind up in hell that really did believe in Jesus Christ. What do I mean? They went to church. Went to Awanas. They, they knew the gospel. They weren't atheists. And they, I'm convinced, told themselves someday they were going to get right with the Lord. Get right. Get serious. Receive Christ and, and start living for him. They had time. But tomorrow was not promised to anyone. And so they died before they realized. They, they never received Christ. And so instead of the great white stone, now they're going to stand before the great white throne. What a horrifying thing to think about. It's a, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Christ. So may God give grace to all who are watching right now online and to all those that we know and love that are not saved. May God give us grace to, in a loving way, communicate the urgency of the hour. Nobody is promised tomorrow. Oh, but I'm young, I'm healthy. You could die in a car accident. It's just, you know, no, tomorrow's not promised to anyone. Today is the day of salvation. Father, we thank you for your word. What a sobering section of scripture. And yet you've placed it here, Lord, not to terrify, but really to motivate people would read this and go, there is really a day of judgment coming, and I, I don't want to be there for that. Great, come to me.
I'll receive you. I love you. I died for you. You, you would say to them, Lord, thank you that you loved us so much you were willing to give your life for us. We ask you, Lord, to keep working in our lives, that we would keep wanting to live for you and give us a passion for souls like we've never known before. And we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.